If what we have found to be true in 3.9 applies to what is taught in 3.9, it must also apply to what is taught in 5.18. And that means that the reason why a person does not sin is that he is begotten of God. And the reason why the evil one does not touch a person is that he is begotten of God. Regeneration is the logical and causal explanation of abstinence from sin and freedom from the touch of the evil one. Of course, it is not our purpose now to determine what this freedom from sin, this incapacity to sin, and this immunity to the invasion of the evil one precisely means. All we are interested in at present is simply to establish the relation which regeneration sustains to these characteristics of the regenerate person. We are forced to the conclusion, therefore, on the basis of 3.9 and 5.18, that the relation established in these two texts applies to all the others also. In 2.29 we must infer that the reason why the person in view does righteousness is that he is begotten of God, and likewise in the others. In 4.7 regeneration must be regarded as the cause of love. In 5.1 the cause of belief that Jesus is the Christ. In 5.4 the cause of overcoming the world. We have therefore a whole catalog of virtues, belief that Jesus is the Christ, overcoming the world, abstinence from sin, self-control, incapacity to sin, freedom from the touch of the evil one, doing righteousness, love to God, and one's neighbor. And they are all the fruit of regeneration. It should be noted how comprehensive and representative this catalog is. It covers the wide range of the virtue demanded by the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. In the order in which they have been stated above, as Bengal expressed it in another connection, Faith leads the band, and love brings up the rear. It should be specially noted that even faith that Jesus is the Christ is the effect of regeneration. This is, of course, a clear implication of John 3, verses 3 through 8. But John the Apostle here takes pains to make that plain. Regeneration is the beginning of all saving grace in us, and all saving grace in exercise on our part proceeds from the fountain of regeneration. We are not born again by faith, or repentance, or conversion. We repent and believe because we have been regenerated. No one can say in truth that Jesus is the Christ except by regeneration of the Spirit, and that is one of the ways by which the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ. The embrace of Christ in faith is the first evidence of regeneration, and only thus may we know that we have been regenerated. The priority of regeneration might create the impression that a person could be regenerated and yet not converted. These passages in 1 John should correct any such misapprehension. We need to remember again that the leading emphasis in these passages is the invariable concomitance of regeneration and the other graces mentioned. Everyone who is begotten of God does not do sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he is begotten of God. 3.9 Everyone who is begotten of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory which has overcome the world, even our faith. 5.4 Everyone who is begotten of God does not sin, but he who has been begotten of God keep himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. 5.18 When we put these texts together, they expressly state that every regenerate person has been delivered from the power of sin, overcomes the world by the faith of Christ, and exercises that self-control by which he is no longer the slave of sin and of the evil one. That means, when reduced to its simplest terms, that the regenerate person is converted and exercises faith and repentance. 
we must not think of regeneration as something which can be abstracted from the saving exercises which are its effects. Hence we shall have to conclude that in the other passages, 2.29, 4.7, and 5.1, the fruits mentioned, doing righteousness, the love, and knowledge of God, believing that Jesus is the Christ, are just as necessarily the accompaniments of regeneration as are the fruits mentioned in 3.9, 5.4, and 18. This simply means that all of the graces mentioned in these passages are the consequences of regeneration, and not only consequences which sooner or later follow upon regeneration, but fruits which are inseparable from regeneration. We are warned and advised, therefore, that while regeneration is the action of God and of God alone, we must never conceive of this action as separable from the activities of saving grace on our part, which are the necessary and appropriate effects of God's grace in us. The Apostle John had learned of his Lord and what he teaches in his epistle is, in other terms, exactly what Jesus taught in his discourse to Nicodemus. If it is true that no one enters the kingdom of God except by regeneration, John 3, verses 3 and 5, it is also just as true that everyone who is born again has entered into the kingdom of God. If regeneration is the way of entrance, then those regenerated have entered, and having entered, they see the kingdom of God and are members of it. This is again the pointed lesson of Jesus in John 3, 6. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That is to say, the person born of the Holy Spirit is indwelt and directed by the Holy Spirit. The regenerate person cannot live in sin and be unconverted, and neither can he live any longer in neutral abstraction. He is immediately a member of the kingdom of God, he is spirit, and his action and behavior must be consonant with that new citizenship. In the language of the Apostle Paul, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, they have become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 There are numerous other considerations derived from the scripture which confirm this great truth that regeneration is such a radical, pervasive, and efficacious transformation that it immediately registers itself in the conscious activity of the person concerned in the exercises of faith and repentance and new obedience. Far too frequently the conception entertained of conversion is so superficial and beggarly that it completely fails to take account of the momentous change of which conversion is the fruit. And the whole notion of what is involved in the application of redemption becomes so attenuated that it has little or no resemblance to that which the gospel teaches. Regeneration is at the basis of all change in heart and life. It is a stupendous change because it is God's recreative act. A cheap and tawdry evangelism has tended to rob the gospel which it proclaims of that invincible power which is the glory of the gospel of sovereign grace. May the church come to think and live again in terms of the gospel which is the power of God unto salvation. Chapter 4 Faith and Repentance Regeneration is inseparable from its effects and one of the effects is faith. Without regeneration it is morally and spiritually impossible for a person to believe in Christ but when a person is regenerated, it is morally and spiritually impossible for that person not to believe. Jesus said, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, John 6.37. And he was referring in this case surely to the giving of the Father in the efficacious drawing of the Father mentioned in the same context, John 6, verses 44 and 65. Regeneration is the renewing of the heart and mind, and the renewed heart and mind must act according to their nature.
faith. Regeneration is the act of God and of God alone. But faith is not the act of God. It is not God who believes in Christ for salvation. It is the sinner. It is by God's grace that a person is able to believe, but faith is an activity on the part of the person and of him alone. In faith, we receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation. It might be said, this is a strange mixture. God alone regenerates, we alone believe. And we believe in Christ alone for salvation. But this is precisely the way it is. It is well for us to appreciate all that is implied in the combination, for it is God's way of salvation, and it expresses his supreme wisdom and grace. In salvation, God does not deal with us as machines. He deals with us as persons, and therefore salvation brings the whole range of our activity within its scope. By grace we are saved through faith. See Ephesians 2.8 If we are to have a better understanding of what faith is, we must examine it as to its warrant and as to its nature. The warrant, faith, as we shall see later, is a whole-souled movement of self-commitment to Christ for salvation from sin and its consequences. It is not unnecessary to ask the question, What warrant does a lost sinner have to commit himself to Christ? How may he know that he will be accepted? How does he know that Christ is able to save? How does he know that this confidence is not misplaced? How does he know that Christ is willing to save him? These are urgent questions, perhaps not urgent for the person who has no true conception of the issues at stake or of the gravity of his lost condition, but exceedingly urgent and pertinent for the person convicted of sin and in whose heart burns the reality and realization of the wrath of God against sin. There are the following facts which constitute the warrant of faith. Number one, the universal offer of the gospel. This offer may be regarded from several viewpoints. It may be regarded as invitation, as demand, as promise, and as overture. But from whatever angle we may view it, it is full, free, and unrestricted. The appeals of the gospel cover the whole range of divine prerogative and of human interest. God entreats, he invites, he commands, he calls, he presents the overture of mercy and grace, and he does this to all without distinction or discrimination. It may surprise us that this universal offer should receive such prominence in the Old Testament. Under the Old Testament, the revelation of God's saving grace was given to a chosen people, and to them were committed the oracles of God. The psalmist could sing, in Judah is God known, his name is great in Israel. In Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. Psalm 76, verses 1 and 2. And Jesus could say of this Old Testament period, Salvation is of the Jews. John 4:22. There was a middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. But it is in the Old Testament we find such an appeal as this. There is no God else beside me. A just God and a Savior, there is none beside me. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. Isaiah 45, verses 21 and 22. Again we read, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? Ezekiel 33, verse 11. See also chapter 18, verses 23 and 32. Here is the most emphatic negation. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Affirmation, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Asservation, as I live, saith the Lord. 
exhortation, Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, protestation, Why will ye die? If there is universality of exhortation and appeal when God's covenant grace was concentrated in Israel, how much more apparent must this be when there is now no longer Jew nor Gentile, and the middle wall of partition is broken down, when the gospel is proclaimed in terms of Jesus' commission, Go ye therefore and disciple all the nations. Matthew 28:19. The words of Jesus are redolent of this indiscriminate invitation. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11:28. Him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. John 6:37. And the words of the apostle are unmistakably clear. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now he commandeth men that they should all everywhere repent, inasmuch as he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he hath ordained, having given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. It is not simply that God entreats men everywhere that they should turn and repent. He commands them to do so. It is a charge invested with the authority and majesty of his sovereignty as Lord of all. The sovereign imperative of God is brought to bear upon the overture of grace, and that is the end of all contention. From his command to all, no one is excluded. Number two, the all-sufficiency and suitability of the Savior presented. Christ presented himself in the glory of his person and in the sufficiency of his Saviorhood when he said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11:28. And again, him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. John 6:37. It is this truth that is enunciated when it is written, Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7:25. The sufficiency of his saviorhood rests upon the work he accomplished once for all when he died upon the cross and rose again in triumphant power but it resides in the efficacy and perfection of his continued activity at the right hand of God. It is because he continues ever and has an unchangeable priesthood that he is able to save them that come unto him and to give them eternal life. When Christ is presented to lost men in the proclamation of the gospel, it is as Savior he is presented, as one who ever continues to be the embodiment of the salvation he has once for all accomplished. It is not the possibility of salvation that is offered to lost men, but the Savior himself, and therefore salvation full and perfect. There is no imperfection in the salvation offered, and there is no restriction to its overture. It is full, free, and unrestricted. And this is the warrant of faith. The faith of which we are now speaking is not the belief that we have been saved, but trust in Christ in order that we may be saved. And it is of paramount concern to know that Christ is presented to all without distinction, to the end that they may entrust themselves to him for salvation. The gospel offer is not restricted to the elect, or even to those for whom Christ died. And the warrant of faith is not the conviction that we are elect, or that we are among those for whom, strictly speaking, Christ died, but the fact that Christ, in the glory of his person, in the perfection of his finished work, and in the efficacy of his exalted activity as King and Savior, is presented to us in the full, free, and unrestricted overture of the gospel. It is not as persons convinced of our election, nor as persons convinced that we are the special objects of God's love, 
that we commit ourselves to him, but as lost sinners. We entrust ourselves to him not because we believe we have been saved, but as lost sinners in order that we may be saved. It is to us in our lost condition that the warrant of faith is given, and the warrant is not restricted or circumscribed in any way. In the warrant of faith, the rich mercy of God is proffered to the lost, and the promise of grace is certified by the veracity and faithfulness of God. This is the ground upon which a lost sinner may commit himself to Christ in full confidence that he will be saved, and no sinner to whom the gospel comes is excluded from the divine warrant for such confidence. The Nature There are three things that need to be said about the nature of faith. Faith is knowledge, conviction, and trust. Number one, knowledge. It might seem very confusing to say that faith is knowledge. For is it not one thing to know, another thing to believe? This is partly true. Sometimes we must distinguish between faith and knowledge and place them in contrast to each other. But there is a knowledge that is indispensable to faith. In our ordinary human relations, do we trust a person of whom we know nothing? Especially when that for which we trust him is of grave importance for us, we must know a good deal regarding his identity and his character. How much more must this be the case with that faith which is directed to Christ? For it is faith against all the issues of life and death, of time and eternity. We must know who Christ is, what he has done, and what he is able to do. Otherwise, faith would be blind conjecture at the best and foolish mockery at the worst. There must be apprehension of the truth respecting Christ. Sometimes, indeed, the measure of truth apprehended by the believing person is very small, and we have to appreciate the fact that the faith of some in its initial stages is very elementary. But faith cannot begin in a vacuum of knowledge. Paul reminds us of this very simply when he says, Faith is of hearing and hearing of the word of Christ, Romans 10.17. Number two, conviction. Faith is assent. We must not only know the truth respecting Christ, but we must also believe it to be true. It is possible, of course, for us to understand the import of certain propositions of truth, and yet not believe these propositions. All disbelief is of this character, and the more intelligently the import of the truth concerned is understood, the more violent may be the disbelief. A person who rejects the virgin birth may understand well what the doctrine of the virgin birth is, and for that very reason reject it. But we are now dealing not with disbelief or unbelief, but with faith, and this obviously implies that the truths known are also accepted as true. The conviction which enters into faith is not only an assent to the truth respecting Christ, but also a recognition of the exact correspondence that there is between the truth of Christ and our deeds as lost sinners. What Christ is as Savior perfectly dovetails with our deepest and most ultimate need. This is just saying that Christ's sufficiency as Savior meets the desperateness and hopelessness of our sin and misery. It is conviction which engages, therefore, our greatest interest and which registers the verdict, Christ is exactly suited to all that I am in my sin and misery and to all that I should aspire to be by God's grace. Christ fits in perfectly to the totality of our situation in its sin, guilt, misery, and ill desert. Number three, trust. Faith is knowledge passing into conviction, and it is conviction passing into confidence. Faith cannot stop short of self-commitment to Christ, a transference of reliance upon ourselves and all human resources 
to reliance upon Christ alone for salvation. It is a receiving and resting upon him. It is here that the most characteristic act of faith appears. It is engagement of person to person, the engagement of the sinner as lost to the person of the sinner able and willing to save. Faith, after all, is not belief of propositions of truth respecting the Savior, however essential an ingredient of faith such belief is. Faith is trust in a person, the person of Christ, the Son of God, and Savior of the lost. It is entrustment of ourselves to him. It is not simply believing him, it is believing in him and on him. The Reformers laid special emphasis upon this element of faith. They were opposing the Romish view that faith is assent. It is quite consistent with Romish religion to say that faith is assent. It is the genius of the Romish conception of salvation to intrude mediators between the soul and the Savior, the Church, the Virgin, the sacraments. On the contrary, it is the glory of the gospel of God's grace that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And it was the glory of our Protestant Reformation to discover again the purity of the Evangel. The Reformers recognized that the essence of saving faith is to bring the sinner lost and dead in trespasses and sins into direct personal contact with the Savior himself, contact which is nothing less than that of self-commitment to him in all the glory of his person and perfection of his work, as he is freely and fully offered in the gospel. It is to be remembered that the efficacy of faith does not reside in itself. Faith is not something that merits the favor of God. All the efficacy unto salvation resides in the Savior. As one has aptly and truly stated the case, it is not faith that saves, but faith in Jesus Christ. Strictly speaking, it is not even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. Faith unites us to Christ in the bonds of abiding attachment and entrustment, and it is this union which ensures that the saving power, grace, and virtue of the Savior become operative in the believer. The specific character of faith is that it looks away from itself and finds its whole interest and object in Christ. He is the absorbing preoccupation of faith. It is at the point of faith in Christ that our responsibility is engaged to the fullest extent, just as it is in the exercise of faith that our hearts and minds and wealth are active to the highest degree. It is not our responsibility to regenerate ourselves. Regeneration is the action of God and of God alone. It is our responsibility to be what regeneration affects. It is our responsibility to be holy. But the act of regeneration does not come within the sphere of our responsible action. Faith does. And we are never relieved of the obligation to believe in Christ to the saving of our souls. The fact that regeneration is the prerequisite of faith in no way relieves us of the responsibility to believe, nor does it eliminate the priceless privilege that is ours as Christ and his claims are pressed upon us in full and free overtures of his grace. Our inability is no excuse for our unbelief, nor does it provide us with any reason for not believing. As we are presented with Christ in the gospel, there is no reason for the rejection of unbelief, and all reason demands the entrustment of faith. Repentance The question has been discussed, which is prior, faith or repentance? It is an unnecessary question, and the insistence that one is prior to the other futile. There is no priority. The faith that is unto salvation is a penitent faith, 
and the repentance that is unto life is a believing repentance. Repentance is admirably defined in the Shorter Catechism. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God, with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. The interdependence of faith and repentance can be readily seen when we remember that faith is faith in Christ for salvation from sin. But if faith is directed to salvation from sin, there must be hatred of sin and the desire to be saved from it. Such hatred of sin involves repentance, which essentially consists in turning from sin unto God. Again, if we remember that repentance is turning from sin unto God, the turning to God implies faith in the mercy of God as revealed in Christ. It is impossible to disentangle faith and repentance. Saving faith is permeated with repentance, and repentance is permeated with faith. Regeneration becomes vocal in our minds in the exercises of faith and repentance. Repentance consists essentially in change of heart and mind and will. The change of heart and mind and will principally respects four things. It is a change of mind respecting God, respecting ourselves, respecting sin, and respecting righteousness. Apart from regeneration, our thought of God, of ourselves, of sin, and of righteousness is radically perverted. Regeneration changes our hearts and mind. It radically renews them. Hence, there is a radical change in our thinking and feeling. Old things have passed away, and all things have become new. It is very important to observe that the faith which is unto salvation is the faith which is accompanied by that change of thought and attitude. Too frequently in evangelical circles, and particularly in popular evangelism, the momentousness of the change which faith signalizes is not understood or appreciated. There are two fallacies. The one is to put faith out of the context which alone gives it significance, and the other is to think of faith in terms simply of decision and rather cheap decision at that. These fallacies are closely related and condition each other. The emphasis upon repentance and upon the deep-seated change of thought and feeling which it involves is precisely what is necessary to correct this impoverished and soul-destroying conception of faith. The nature of repentance serves to accentuate the urgency of the issues at stake in the demand of the gospel, the cleavage with sin which the acceptance of the gospel entails, and the totally new outlook which the faith of the gospel imparts. Repentance we must not think of as consisting merely in a change of mind in general. It is very particular and concrete. And since it is a change of mind with reference to sin, it is a change of mind with reference to particular sins, sins in all the particularity and individuality which belong to our sins. It is very easy for us to speak of sin, to be very denunciatory respecting sin, and denunciatory respecting the particular sins of other people and yet not be penitent regarding our own particular sins. The test of repentance is the genuineness and resoluteness of our repentance in respect of our own sins, sins characterized by the aggravations which are peculiar to our own selves. Repentance in the case of the Thessalonians manifested itself in the fact that they turned from idols to serve the living God. It was their idolatry which peculiarly evidenced their alienation from God, and it was repentance regarding that that provided the genuineness of their faith and of their hope. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10. 
The gospel is not only that by grace are we saved through faith, but it is also the gospel of repentance. When Jesus, after his resurrection, opened the understanding of the disciples that they might understand the scriptures, he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance unto the remission of sins should be preached in his name unto all the nations. Luke 24, verses 46 and 47. When Peter had preached to the multitude on the occasion of Pentecost, and they were constrained to say, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ unto the remission of your sins. Acts 2, verses 37 and 38. Later on in like manner, Peter interpreted the exaltation of Christ as exaltation in the capacity of Prince and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts 5.31 Could anything certify more clearly that the gospel is the gospel of repentance than the fact that Jesus' heavenly ministry as Savior is one of dispensing repentance unto the forgiveness of sins? Hence Paul, when he gave an account of his own ministry to the elders from Ephesus, said that he testified both to the Jews and also to the Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus. Acts 20.21 And the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews indicates that repentance from dead works is one of the first principles of the doctrine of Christ. Hebrews 6.1 It could not be otherwise. The new life in Christ Jesus means that the bands which bind us to the dominion of sin are broken. The believer is dead to sin by the body of Christ. The old man has been crucified that the body of sin might be destroyed and henceforth he does not serve sin. Romans 6, verses 2 and 6. This breach with the past registers itself in his consciousness in turning from sin unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. We see therefore that the emphasis which the scripture places upon faith as the condition of salvation is not to be construed as if faith were the only condition. The various exercises or responses of our spirits have their own peculiar function. Repentance is that which describes the response of turning from sin unto God. This is its specific character, just as the specific character of faith is to receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation. Repentance reminds us that if the faith we profess is a faith that allows us to walk in the ways of this present evil world, in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, in the fellowship of the works of darkness, then our faith is but mockery and deception. True faith is suffused with penitence. And just as faith is not only a momentary act, but an abiding attitude of trust and confidence directed to the Savior, so repentance results in constant contrition. The broken spirit and the contrite heart are abiding marks of the believing soul. As long as sin remains, there must be the consciousness of it, and this conviction of our own sinfulness will constrain self-abhorrence, confession, and the plea of forgiveness and cleansing. Christ's blood is the labor of initial cleansing, but it is also the fountain to which the believer must continuously repair. It is at the cross of Christ that repentance has its beginning. It is at the cross of Christ that it must continue to pour out its heart in the tears of confession and contrition. The way of sanctification is the way of contrition for the sin of the past and of the present. The Lord forgives our sins, and forgiveness is sealed by the light of his countenance.
but we do not forgive ourselves. Chapter 5. Justification The basic religious question is that of our relation to God. And how can man be just with God? How can he be right with the Holy One? In our situation, however, the question is much more aggravated. It is not simply, how can man be just with God, but how can sinful man be just with God? In the last analysis, sin is always against God, and the essence of sin is to be against God. The person who is against God cannot be right with God, for if we are against God, then God is against us. It could not be otherwise. God cannot be indifferent to or complacent towards that which is the contradiction of himself. His very perfection requires the recoil of righteous indignation, and that is God's wrath. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Romans 1.18 This is our situation, and it is our relation to God. How can we be right with him? The answer, of course, is that we cannot be right with him. We are all wrong with him. And we are all wrong with him because we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Far too frequently we fail to entertain the gravity of this fact. Hence, the reality of our sin and the reality of the wrath of God upon us for our sin do not come into our reckoning. This is the reason why the grand article of justification does not ring the bells in the innermost depths of our spirit. And this is the reason why the gospel of justification is to such an extent a meaningless sound in the world and in the church of the 20th century. We are not imbued with the profound sense of the reality of God, of his majesty and holiness. And sin, if reckoned with at all, is little more than a misfortune or maladjustment. If we are to appreciate that which is central in the gospel, if the jubilee trumpet is to find its echo again in our hearts, our thinking must be revolutionized by the realism of the wrath of God, of the reality and gravity of our guilt, and of the divine condemnation. It is then, and only then, that our thinking and feeling will be rehabilitated to an understanding of God's grace in the justification of the ungodly. The question is really not so much, how can man be just with God, but how can sinful man become just with God? The question, in this form, points up the necessity of a complete reversal in our relation to God. Justification is the answer, and justification is the act of God's free grace. It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Romans 8.33 This truth that God justifies needs to be underlined. We do not justify ourselves. Justification is not our apology, nor is it the effect in us of a process of self-excusation. It is not even our confession, nor the good feeling that may be induced in us by confession. Justification is not any religious exercise in which we engage, however noble and good that religious exercise may be. If we are to understand justification and appropriate its grace, we must turn our thought to the action of God in justifying the ungodly. At no point is the free grace of God more manifest than in his justifying act. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.24 The truth of justification has suffered at the hands of human perversion as much as any doctrine of scripture. One of the ways in which it has been perverted is the failure to reckon with the meaning of the term. Justification does not mean to make righteous or good or holy or upright. 
It is perfectly true that in the application of redemption, God makes people holy and upright. He renews them after his own image. He begins to do this in regeneration, and he carries it on in the work of sanctification. He will perfect it in glorification. But justification does not refer to this renewing and sanctifying grace of God. It is one of the primary errors of the Romish Church that it regards justification as the infusion of grace as renewal and sanctification whereby we are made holy. And the seriousness of the Romish error is not so much that it has confused justification and renewal, but that it has confused these two distinct acts of God's grace and eliminated from the message of the gospel the great truth of free and full justification by grace. That is why Luther endured such travail of soul as long as he was governed by Romish distortion and the reason why he came to enjoy such joy and confident assurance was that he had been emancipated from the chains by which Rome had bound him. He found the great truth that justification is something entirely different from what Rome had taught. That justification does not mean to make holy or upright should be apparent from common use. When we justify a person, we do not make that person good or right. When a judge justifies an accused person, He does not make that person an upright person. He simply declares that in his judgment the person is not guilty of the accusation, but is upright in terms of the law relevant to the case. In a word, justification is simply a declaration or pronouncement respecting the relation of the person to the law which he, the judge, is required to administer. It might be, of course, that our common use would not be the same as the use of the term in Scripture. Scripture must be its own interpreter. And the question is, does Scripture usage accord with common use? This question is very easily answered. The answer is that Scripture uses the term in the same way. There are several considerations which prove this conclusion. 1. In both Testaments there are numerous passages where the term justify cannot mean anything else but to declare to be righteous. For example, we read, If there be a controversy between men, and they come into judgment, that the judges may judge them, then they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Deuteronomy 25, verse 1. It was not the function of judges to make people righteous. The meaning is simply and only that the judges were to give a just judgment, and therefore they were to declare the righteous to be righteous, just as they were to declare the wicked to be wicked. Again we read, He that justifieth the wicked, and he that condemneth the just, even they both are an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 17.15 Now it would not be an abomination to the Lord to make the wicked upright. It would be a highly commendable thing if we could convert a wicked man and make him a righteous man. That is what God does when he regenerates a man. The meaning is more than obvious. To justify the wicked is not to make him upright, but simply to declare him to be righteous when he is not. The abomination consists in giving a judgment contrary to truth and fact. Hence, justification in this case is concerned only with the judgment which we give. It is declarative. In the New Testament, likewise, we have the same thought. And all the people, when they heard, and the publicans, justified God. Luke 7.29 Did the people and the publicans make God upright or righteous? The thought would be blasphemous. It means that they declared God to be righteous, a perfectly proper action. They declared the righteousness of God. They vindicated him. 
Many other passages in both Testaments are to the same effect, but these are sufficient to show that to justify does not mean to make upright. Number two, justification is contrasted with condemnation. See Deuteronomy 25 verse 1, Proverbs 17 verse 15, and Romans 8 verses 33 and 34. Condemn never means to make wicked, so justify cannot mean to make good or upright. Number three, there are passages in which the thought of giving judgment provides us with the sense in which we are to understand the word justification. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Romans 8.33 The idea is not that of doing anything inwardly in the elect of God. What is in view is the accusation which an adversary may bring against the elect of God, and what is protested is that God's tribunal and judgment are ultimate. It is God's judgment that is in view when the text says, It is God that justifieth. Romans 8, 33 and 34 is significant in another respect. Not only does it clearly show the meaning of the term justify, namely, that it is judicial in its import, but this passage also shows that it is this judicial meaning that holds in God's justification of the ungodly. Paul is certainly using the word justify here, in the same sense as he does earlier in the epistle. The epistle to the Romans is concerned with this very subject, the justification of sinners. This is the grand theme of the first five chapters in particular. Romans 8 verses 33 and 34 conclusively shows that the meaning is that which is contrasted with the word condemn, and that which is related to the rebuttal of a judicial charge. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves 
would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.